So 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray together. Jesus, as your church that you established, that you are building, we come in one confession that you are the Son of God. And by your promises, by by your word, we have confidence that in your victory, we have victory. But God, in this life, we certainly do struggle. God, we struggle with weakness. We struggle with our frailty. We struggle with illness and grief and loss. And so God, as we we think about the struggle as the body of Christ, we know from your word that when one member of your body suffers, we all suffer. And so we think of those in our congregation uh, who are sick, and recovering. Lord, we thank you for your grace to them. Lord, we think of those who are experiencing loss and grief and tragedy. Lord, you know who they are. We lift them up to you and ask that you would bring comfort. And we ask for us, God, as we gather in this place, that you would teach us from your word, that you would give us incredible confidence in who you are, who you have called us to be, and who you have made us by your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Uh, I have been accused many times in my life of being a perfectionist. I've been accused by friends and family. I've been accused of being a perfectionist by coworkers, Pastor Nick. I've been accused of being a perfectionist by many, many, many online personality assessments. And it brings me a little insecurity. I'm always a little insecure whenever I share with people that this is, some, this is some struggle that I have, that I'm a perfectionist. Because I always, as a perfectionist, I anticipate that all of you now are thinking, really? You? <laughs> a long way to go, bro. But I want to clear up a misconception about perfectionism. See, perfectionists don't believe that they are perfect. 
they believe that they should be perfect. Somewhere deep down, they believe that it's possible. It's actually possible to achieve this perfect standard. And so they beat themselves up when they don't perform according to that standard. And so many people try to love the perfectionists in their lives by helping them to lower the bar, right? Don't beat yourself up. It's okay being just okay. And it sounds like a loving thing to do to encourage them. Like, no, you're actually like, we, we love you and, and, you're, and you're doing well. Just like, don't be so hard on yourself. Lower that bar a little bit. And so it sounds like the loving thing to do. The problem is the Bible. Have you read it? Have you seen God's standards in there? For instance, Matthew 5, 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I'm just trying to take the Bible seriously, y'all. Just trying to do what Jesus said. He said, be perfect. Try, trying. It's hard. Don't tell me to lower the bar. God's bar is, is pretty, it's pretty high. Jesus says we should all be perfectionists. A friend and, and fellow perfectionist once told me, a perfectionist's standards are not too high. They're actually too low they think it's actually possible to attain. And so the solution for the perfectionist is not lowering the bar, it's actually raising the bar. The solution for a perfectionist is to raise the bar because it's only when we understand that God's standards are too high for us that we are finally able to receive grace. Isn't that crazy? If you're here, I know this, not everyone relates to this, but if you're here and you're constantly beating yourself up because you're not meeting your standards and because you're not meeting your standards, you think God's disappointed in you. The, the, the solution is not your bar needs to be, uh, to be lower because, oh, God doesn't really care that much. No, God cares greatly. He cares deeply. The solution is actually to raise the bar so there is no hope. You must rely on grace. See, many people in the world have decided that God's standards in Scripture are too high. God's standards in Scripture are too high. Nobody can attain them, and so they must not be God's standards. They must actually be human standards based in human wisdom, recorded in human words in Scripture. And so they put human words into God's mouth because God could never have standards that high for me. And so the solution is to lower the bar. And so even in the church, even in the church, people will try to claim uh, that this thing that God forbids really isn't a sin because that would be too high a standard. That would be too strict. And so God can't possibly require that of us. Or this verse doesn't really mean that. Or because God loves me as I am and accepts me as I am, he will let me do what I want because he loves me. And loving me means letting me do whatever I want and affirming that it is good. And so whether you're here and you struggle with shame and discouragement because you're not meeting your standards 
or you're not meeting God's standards, and so you're fearful of how he looks at you. Or maybe you're here and you're struggling with God's demand for obedience, and and so you're tempted toward moral compromise. You're tempted to lower the bar and say, this is good enough. Right? Or maybe you're, you're, you're someplace in between or some combination of the two. We all need to hear what God has to say to the church today. See, the Apostle John, who wrote our text, has had a lot to say about God's love in this letter. But John never says that God's love allows us to disregard his commandments. God loves us, yes, but his love never allows us to disregard his commandments. Many Christians will hear about grace and assume it means that they can live however they want without fear. But grace is not permission to live however you want. Grace is power to live like Jesus. God doesn't allow us to just live however we want and and not regard his character, not regard his word, not regard his commandments. Yes, he has grace and he forgives us. But that grace is not just freedom from sin. It is freedom for righteousness. Grace is power to live like Jesus. Jesus is the perfect example of what a life of perfected love looks like. This is what John says, that in this, love is perfected with us. If you remember from previous weeks, we've been talking about this perfected love. It's not a statement about the purity or the quality of God's love, although God's love is pure and morally perfect and and there's nothing in all the universe like it. But perfected love implies that God's love has a purpose, God's love has an intended goal. It has a destination. God's love is accomplishing something, not just pouring his love out and that's good enough for him. He wants his love to be received by his people so that his people will be transformed by that love and then reflect that love to one another. It's not just love for the sake of love. It's love for the sake of transformation, for the sake of power, for the sake of more love, for the sake of the glory of our Father in heaven. There is a goal, there is a purpose for it. And so Jesus puts this perfect love on display. When we receive God's love and reflect God's love, we look like Jesus who lived in perfect love and obedience to the Father and reflected who God is to the world. And so because of the power of this perfect love of God, we can take seriously the incredibly high moral standards and commands of God. Because even when we fail to meet God's perfect standards, even when we are tempted to beat ourselves up or think that God is mad or disappointed in us, instead of lowering the bar, and compromising God's integrity, and compromising God's moral perfection, instead of lowering the bar, we can affirm the impossible height of God's perfect moral commands. Because the word of God says that for the one in whom God's love is perfected, there is no fear of judgment. There is no fear of judgment for those in whom the love of God 
is perfected. John says that because God's love is perfected with us, we are able to have confidence in the day of judgment. See, many people will claim in our culture, maybe you've heard this phrase, only God can judge me. Right? And they usually say that when they do something that they know people will frown upon and not really appreciate. And they'll say like, hey, you know, like, are you sure about this thing? Only God can judge me. Don't judge me. Judge not lest you be judged. Only God can judge me. In fact, my cousin, God bless him, has this tattooed across his back. Only God can judge me. To be fair, it was something that my grandmother used to say all the time. <laughs> Only God can judge me. And I just want to change one word, and then I think it would be biblical. Only God will judge me. God will judge me. God will judge you. This is the day of judgment. We've talked about this before in, in, in the first John passage. This, this day of judgment, sometimes referred to as the day of the Lord or the last day. This is the day at the end of world history when all of humanity, living or dead, will rise and stand before God and experience judgment. We will all be held accountable for the way we lived our lives. Those who lived righteously will be judged righteous and receive eternal life. In, the, in those in whom wickedness is found, they will be judged unrighteous and will receive eternal punishment. This is the, the scene when Jesus is describing the sheep and the goats. The sheep will be put on one side. The goats will be put on the other side. To the sheep, he'll say, welcome into the, the, the kingdom and to the goats, they will be cast away. We will be judged. And so given these stakes, we should not boast that God can judge us, but instead ask, how will I have confidence on that day when he does? How can I have confidence on that day when God judges the living and the dead? Because if we're all honest with ourselves, if we take an honest assessment of our lives, at best, we're a mixed bag. We're a mixed bag of good and bad deeds. I'm sure there are things in your life, when you think about it, you're proud of. I did this thing and that was a good deed and I'm, and I'm happy I did that thing. And, and there's also things in our lives that we kind of hide away, we tuck away in the darkness. We're all living uh, like an Instagram feed, right? We're just showing the people what we want them to see and just never posting the things that we don't want them to see. So we've got this carefully curated life of all the good things never let you see the bad things. But if we're honest, we're a mixed bag. It's a little of both. It's a little of both. Human beings are capable of great good. Human beings are capable of great evil. And most of the time, both great good and great evil, that line cuts right through our very hearts. And so how can we have confidence? How can we have confidence on the day of judgment, when we will be judged. See, if we learn something from Adam and Eve, it's that it only takes one act of rebellion to make us unfit for eternal life with God. 
one command. They broke one command and God boots them out of the garden. James 2.10 says, For whoever, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. So according to this, none of us should have any confidence in the day of judgment. Nobody. Who then can be saved? No one can have confidence in the day of judgment. So how can John possibly say this? How can John say, for the one in whom love has been perfected, we can have confidence in the day of judgment? It's because of the power of the perfect love of God. Because of God's love, we have no fear in judgment. Not because God has eliminated his standards, but because he has eliminated our sin. The reason that you can have confidence on the day of judgment, if your faith is in Jesus, is not because you believe in Jesus and so God eliminates his standards for you, but because you believe in Jesus, God has eliminated your sin. And if our sin has been taken away, then so also our punishment has been taken away. Our punishment for sin. And if that punishment for sin has been taken away, then perfect love has cast out all fear. That's what John says. If perfect love is in you, then you can have confidence on the day of judgment because judgment has to do with fear of punishment. And if that punishment has been taken away, then perfect love has cast out all fear. And so you can have confidence on the day of judgment, mixed bag that you are, because of what Christ has accomplished for you. This is how John says that God has loved us. He loves us by sending his son to be the savior of the world, to take away the sins of the world by removing our sin, therefore removing our punishment, therefore we can live apart from fear. Isn't that good news? It's good news. However, God's love must be received through faith in Jesus in order for it to apply. See, if someone shows love to you uh, by, by buying you a gift, it does no good if you don't open it or throw it in the trash. Right? If someone wants to show love to you and, and, and elaborate love and buys you a house, it doesn't do you that much good unless you like move into the house, sign the deed, take possession of it. Someone can write you a check. Hey, I want to bless you with this check. If you don't cash it, it doesn't really do anything for you. And so the love of God is poured out generously upon the world. Does us no good unless we receive it through faith. The way we are able to be confident that we have received God's sin-forgiving love is seen in the way we love one another. Having received God's love, it produces fruit in us and we show love for one another. Our love for one another is evidence that we are truly saved. But listen to the text. How do we know if we are loving one another? Verse 2 of chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God. That's all who believe. When we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Now, I feel the need to clarify something for my fellow perfectionists. It is not your ability to keep the commandments that forgives you of your sin. 
It is not your ability to keep the commandments that forgives you of your sin. Rather, it is the power of the perfect love of God that forgives us of our sin. But the evidence that we have truly received that love is seen in our desire and our ability to keep God's commandments by loving one another. See the difference? So a lot of people will live their lives trying to make themselves worthy of God. God, I do all of these good things, therefore you love me. That's not the gospel. That's not what scripture says. The gospel says, Jesus, you love me, though I don't deserve it. And therefore, I will do what you say. Therefore, I will obey. Therefore, I will keep your commandments. See, this may feel like a heavy weight, this requirement. Right? If I love God, I'm going to keep his commandments. But listen to this. It actually, it actually gets crazier. John says that God's commandments are not burdensome. Did you catch that when we read this? It's like this little offhand thing. And you know, keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I read that and I was like, wait, wait, what? His commandments are not burdensome. So because of the love of God, not only is there no fear in judgment, but there is no burden in obedience. Because of the power of the perfect love of God, there is no fear in judgment. Praise God. Hallelujah. There is also no burden in obedience. Think about that for a second. Is it really no burden to keep the commandments? John knows his Bible. He knows nobody outside of Christ has been able to do this. And yet he says they're not burdensome. Now, John is not only saying that, that the love of God enables you to keep the commandments, but it almost sounds like he's saying that it's easy. It's no trouble. It's no burden. It's just the commandments, right? Anyone can keep those. It sounds like John's saying that it's easy. And if this is, in fact, what John is saying, I don't think there's a person in this room that would agree with him. John, you're crazy. What do you mean the commands are not burdensome? Is, 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 is keeping God's commands easy? If you think it's easy, I feel the need to remind you of the biblical storyline. Okay, fastest summary of the Bible ever. God is awesome. Everyone else is awful. And for some reason, he does not give up on us. That's the story of the Bible. If you think the Bible is a book of heroes, I mean, you're wrong. Time and time and time again, they fail. God is amazing. He is loving. He is generous. He's beautiful. He's wise. He's powerful. He's glorious. Everybody else is a pathetic failure. And for some reason, sorry, I just realized I encompassed all of us in that. Indirectly called you all pathetic failures. That's not how I believe about you. You guys are amazing. But everyone is awful. That's biblical. And yet God does not give up on us. That's the story of the Bible. God's people get it wrong. 
They disobey the commandments. And time and time again, because of God's love, he remains patient and faithful to his people. One look at the biblical storyline, one look at our very lives, one look at the life of the church, and we instantly see that our experience of keeping God's commandments is not easy. Check this out. Scholars have outlined 613 individual commands in the Old Testament. Those aren't commands that are, that are doubled. Those are 613 unique individual commands in the Old Testament. It is a burden to memorize them all, let alone to remember to obey all of them at every moment of every day. What does John mean? His commandments are not burdensome. This is what I think John means. I think what John means is not the commands are easy to keep. Rather, they're not a burden. My translation would be, his commands are not a bummer. His commands are not troublesome. His commands are not a problem. His commands are not a stumbling block that we have to get over. His commands are not this this dark side of our faith where we go, yes, Jesus has done all of this for me. (sighs) Then there's those commandments such a bummer. That's what John's saying. He's not saying that it's easy. He's saying they're not a bummer. They're not troublesome. God's commands are not a burden in the same way that cashing a check is not a tedious errand. The way opening a birthday present is not toilsome work. Okay, God's commands are are not a burden. They're not work to be done. They're a gift to be delighted in. The commands of God are a gift to his people to be delighted in. Psalm 119, okay, is the longest chapter in the whole Bible. And it's basically a love song to God's commands. Check this out. Psalm 119, starting in verse, we're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, Starting in verse 97. There's a lot of verses in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. It's like, hey, psalmist, don't you get a room? Like, you know, you love the commandment. No, he is delighting. He's praising the commandments. He's, he's in love with these commandments. He's singing the song of joy to the commandments of God. The psalmist just loves God's commandments. And so people today are so intimidated by God's commands. How do we get to the point to where we can talk about them like the psalmist? I, to be honest, I, I wish I could talk about God's commands that way. God, I love your commands. But so often I'm balancing this tension between, okay, God, I know they're not a bummer, but like I'm bummed that I can't keep them. I'm bummed that I keep failing at them. How do I get to the point to where I'm just rejoicing in the commands of God? I think the key to understanding this is to understand the purpose of the commands. See, we know God's law and we know that it's detailed and, and, and it's heavy. And there's a lot of, of very strict uh, rules and regulations and, and all of these things that you can read about. Just, it's, why, it's why every time you start the Bible, reading the Bible in, in a year, we all drop off in Leviticus somewhere. It's, 
it's, it's, it's hard to understand why is this here? So we need to understand the purpose of God's commands. You see, when God made humanity in the garden, he made them male and female in his own image. And as the image of God, they were supposed to reflect God's nature and character to all of creation. All of creation was supposed to look at the humans and say, this is what God is like. This is how, uh, this, is, this, this is an accurate reflection of the nature and character of God. This is how God loves the world. This is how God stewards the world. This is how God cares for the world. They were supposed to look at the people and say, this is what God is like. And so he gave them a command to obey. Do not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they ate the fruit of the knowledge of the tree, uh, the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good, tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's how it goes. They ate the fruit, and then when they sinned, what they declared to the world was not, this is what God is like, but rather what they showed creation in their disobedience is that God is not worth obeying. So that sin in the garden, it wasn't just about a piece of fruit. It was about God being worth obeying, God being worth trusting, God being worth following, whether we understand what he's doing in our lives or not. God is worth obeying. And so sin is not just disobedience, it's slander. So we tell the world lies about God when we live contrary to his character. It's not just about keeping rules. It's about reflecting who God actually is, his nature, his character, his love, his beauty. And then again, we get another glimpse of this when God saves his people out of Egypt and calls them to be his people. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them these Ten Commandments and it was given to them so that they could reflect God's character to the rest of the nations. See, the first two commandments are about Israel's soul worship of the one God. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a graven image. You'll have no other god, and you'll not try to make an image that represents me or any other god so that you can bow down and worship it, because nothing can reflect who I am except those that I've made. See, the reason human beings are not supposed to make idols that reflect God is because God made idols to reflect him. Human beings. We're like little statues, again, like Adam and Eve, that are supposed to show the world what God is like. His nature, his character, his love, his beauty, his glory, all of those things is what we are supposed to do. And so he gives them the law and he says, hey, don't have other gods, uh, don't make graven images, and then commands four through 10 all have to do with the way we relate to one another. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, honor your father and mother. All of those things are ways that we are supposed to love one another. But the crucial commandment for understanding the purpose of the 10 commandments, understanding, I believe the whole law in the Bible is that third commandment, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall not take the Lord's name, the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, Bearing the name in vain does not mean simply using the the name of God in an unworthy manner, like using it as a curse word. That is certainly not okay. Shouldn't do that. But that's not what that means. Bearing the name of the Lord your God in vain, taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. It means misrepresenting the name and character of God in the way we live. See, God's image is not only in you, but if you have trusted in the God of the universe, 
then his name is on you. As your family name is on you and the way you live is a reflection of your family, God's name is on you and the way you live is a reflection of God. And when we live contrary to his character, it's called sin and sin slanders God. And so the purpose of the law, the purpose of God's commandments is to be a guide for God's people in how to show the world what he is like. The purpose of God's commandments is to guide God's people to show the world in what he is like. We're ambassadors. We're ambassadors born into a divine culture, a divine heritage. God has called us to represent him to the world. And so the world can see his goodness and his beauty and worship him. And so the law is not a burden. The law is a beautiful gift that God has given to his people. It's like a signet ring or or a coat of arms that identifies us with the royal family of the kingdom of heaven. By giving God's people his law, God is saying, I want the world to look at you and see me. Reality Carpinteria. Can Carpinteria, can our city look at you and see God? When people look at you, the way that you live, the way that you love one another, the way that you talk about one another, the way that you talk about people at other churches, other believers in Christ, the way that you serve one another, the way that you don't, can people look at you and say that? That is what Christ is like. This gift is that God actually says in his word that that's possible. It's actually possible to live in God's grace in a way, not so that we're perfect all the time, but so that the world can look at the way the the, the church loves one another And they can actually say, this is what God is like. This is what Jesus is like. What a privilege. What an honor that is. And yet, again, God's people fail time and time again. And so the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2.24, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you. See, this is the opposite of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The the result of taking the name of the Lord your God in vain is that the people that see the way you live actually scorn God. They blaspheme God because of the misrepresentation of who he is. But again, God is gracious and faithful and he will show the world what he is like. And so in the fullness of time, God sends his son 
Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world. He lived in perfect love with the Father. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father. He lived in perfect love to those around him. He fulfills the law of God by keeping the commandments perfectly. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and remove it from us. He came to fulfill the law so that by receiving Jesus, we too become those who have lived righteously according to the law because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done. And so what the scriptures say, the author of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus has said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. And so the reason receiving the love of God results in keeping God's commandments is because we love him and we want the world to know what he is like. It's celebrating someone that we love, praising something that we enjoy. It's, it's gratitude for someone who has saved our life. And that is not burdensome. That is not a burden. That is not a bummer. God's commandments that he gives to those he loves and rescues are not burdensome. That doesn't mean that they're easy. But it is the love of God that is our power to obey them. It's the love of God, the power of the perfect love of God that empowers us to obey God's commandments. See, God's love is a miracle of his grace. His commandments are a gift because the same power that casts out fear is the same power that empowers obedience and by that same power of the love of God, John's statement is true. He says, as he is, as Jesus is, so also are we in the world. Because of the love of God poured out and perfected with us, as the world looked at Jesus and saw the face of God, the world looks at the children of God and sees the same. This is, is true of the church who walk in faith and live in love for one another. That as he is, so also are we in the world, a reflection of the beauty and the goodness and the glory of God. Our love for one another fulfills the demands of the law and shows the world what God is like. Reality, love one another. Love one another, for love is from God, and God is love. Love one another. You have not only been called to be saved by God, you are called to reflect the saving power and the love of God. You are called to reflect that love one to another so that the world will look at your love and know that you are Jesus' disciples. To look at the way you love one another and see the, the, that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. When you love one another, it is the greatest evangelism to this dying world that what the Scriptures say is true, that the Holy Spirit is real, that He empowers God's people to live faithfully and to live lovingly in a way that God would live and love them Himself. When the church of God loves one another, not just those in this building, but those across buildings all over town, all over the world, when we love one another, the world looks and says, I, I don't know a God greater than the one they serve. I see 
God in them. I receive God's love through them when, when, when we serve them. This is a beautiful, beautiful calling, a beautiful gift, and it is all empowered by the perfect love of God. If you are here and you have no confidence for the day of judgment, or you feel like God's moral standards are kind of a bummer, and it's tempting to lower the bar, I just want to encourage you, keep the bar where it is. Keep the standards where God outlines them. Keep that bar impossibly high, unattainable. Because when God's standards are where they should be, we must rely on grace. We have to rely on grace. We recognize that we can't do it. And then, when we recognize our need for grace, we will experience the full power of the perfect love of God. If you could do it on your own, then you wouldn't need God. You would be your own God. You'd be your own Savior. If you could do it on your own, you wouldn't need Him, but you can't. And that's the point. That's the point. The law of God is like a mirror that shows us who we are and shows us how we fail, not to rub our nose in it, but so that we would lift our heads high and look for grace from our Father in heaven above who loves us. Church, there is no power in this world greater than the love of God. There's no power in this world greater than the love of God. There's a there's a, a, a silly, I'm going to get super nerdy on you for a second. There's a, a, a mathematical equation. <laughs> this is church. We'll talk about math. It's a mathematical equation to, uh, to um, quantify the power that something has, a machine, a person, something else. And that equation is power equals work divided by time. Okay, the power of something equates to the amount of work it is able to do in the amount of time it is able to do it. So something with more power is either, to do, is either able to do more work in less time or to do the same amount of work in more time, right? Two cars that weigh the same, driving a quarter mile, one that does it in two seconds and one that does it in 20 seconds. The one that does it in two seconds has more power. So power equals... The amount of work something is able to do divided by the amount of time it's able to do it. Why are we talking about math? Well, because the love of God can accomplish work that nothing else in this universe can accomplish. Okay? It's not that, that, that the love of God, it's not that, that Christ accomplishes something faster than some other deity or ideology. No. Christ accomplishes, Christ, the love of God, the Father who sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, can accomplish in you what nothing else in all of the universe can accomplish, and he accomplishes it the moment you believe. The moment you believe, God does in you what nothing else in this universe can do in you. There is nothing in this world more powerful than the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing more powerful. And because the love of God accomplishes this in us, the moment we believe, then that means however you walked in here, however weighed down by sin, 
however weighed down by fear at the day of judgment, however weighed down by the, 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 the burden of the commands of God, the, that standard that God has for his people, no matter how you walked in here, no matter how much shame you're experiencing for your failure to obey God's commandments this last week or last night or this morning or whatever it is, no matter how you walked in here, if you receive the love of God by believing that the Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of the world, then you can leave here without fear of judgment. Then you can leave here knowing that the the commands of God are not burdensome because the moment you believe, it's done. It's done. He already did everything that was required to do it. Jesus lived that perfect life for you. His righteousness is imparted to you if you believe. He died the death that our sin deserves to die so that all you have to do is cash that check. Some of you know what God has done for you, but you're not taking that check to the bank. You framed it. It's up on your wall. Yes, I know what God has done for me. It's there, but it does no good for you because you won't take it to the bank. Church, take the love of God to the bank for the love of God. Take it to the bank. You have received it by grace. Spend it. Enjoy it. Delight in it because it is good news for you to provide what you need that nothing else in the world can provide for you. Transformation. You've been a child of wrath. Now you're a child of God. Amen. I don't even know what's left in my notes. I'm just going to pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Thank you that you have poured God's love out for us when you were nailed to that cross and you bled for the penalty that our sins deserve. Holy Spirit, thank you that it is by your presence in us that the love of God is poured into our hearts. And so God, for all of us, whether we walked in here not believing or we walked in believing and, 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 and all of the, 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 the fear, the shame, the, the, the struggle of life that we are experiencing for our grief, for our suffering, for our loss. Lord, we just ask that by your grace, you would give us faith to receive the love of God into your heart, into our hearts. Lord, if there be anyone here today who is just thinking, I want to, God, but I don't feel anything. How do I know that it's true? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would confirm it to them by your love, by your power, by your grace. Confirm it to them in Jesus' name that they are loved by God if they believe in what Christ has done for them, for the forgiveness of their sins, then they are declared righteous. And they have been given all power from on high to love you and to love one another. And so God, I pray that we would all leave here in confidence, not because of our ability to do this, but because of the fact that by your love, you already have you give your victory to us. By faith, we walk in that victory that we've received in Christ, delighting in Jesus, 
declaring his good news of salvation to others, demonstrating his love and faithfulness to everyone we come in contact with. And Lord, as is our prayer always, we ask that Carpinteria, the coastlands and the nations would truly see and celebrate Jesus as our greatest treasure. Lord, we pray that we would experience confidence that comes in these truths. Stir our hearts up, Lord, now to worship you and to celebrate you for what you have done. God, you are good. As we sang in the first set, you have done great things. You have done great things. We worship you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.